We'll be reading from 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12 is where the unified kingdom of Israel under Saul and David and Samuel is becomes divided. It is divided between Rehoboam, the son of Sam of Solomon and Jeroboam, the enemy of Solomon. We'll begin in verse 12. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, as the king had spoken, saying, Return to me on the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, and he forsook the counsel of the elders which they had given him. And he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. For it was a turn of events from Yahweh, that he might establish his word, which Yahweh spoke through Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Then all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them. So the people responded to the king with this word, saying, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But as for the sons of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, <clears throat> Rehoboam reigned over them. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him, and he died. And King Rehoboam made haste to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Now it happened when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, that they sent and called him to the congregation and made him king over all Israel. None but the tribe of Judah followed the house of David. Then Rehoboam came to Jerusalem and assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who could wage war to fight against the house of Israel to return the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says Yahweh, You shall not go up and fight against your brothers, the sons of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of Yahweh, and returned to go their way according to the word of Yahweh. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of Yahweh at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord even to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me in return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two golden calves. And he said to them, Is it too much for you to go up to Jerusalem? Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he said, One in Bethel, and he put one in Dan. Now this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before one as far as Dan. And he made houses on high places and made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam made a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah. And he went up to the altar, thus he did in Bethel, to sacrifice to the calves which he had made. And he had the priests of the high places, which he had made, stand in Bethel. Then he went up to the altar, which he 
had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, even the month which he had devised in his own heart, and he made a feast for the sons of Israel, and he went up to the altar to burn incense. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have this this day and this time, this place to come and to meet in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. To proclaim his word, to proclaim the truth about who he is, the Savior that has come to save the people of God. The Savior that has come and has, has made the offer of salvation as a free gift to be received by faith. A salvation that is based upon grace and not works. Salvation that requires no religious preparation. Salvation that comes to the sinner and provides the sinner access to the righteousness of God and Jesus Christ. We pray that our Lord Jesus Christ will be elevated and exalted in this place. That we will see the futility of our own workings, the futility of our own attempts, and that we will see the magnificence of what has already been provided in Jesus Christ, and that we would lay our lives at his feet like never before. Pray that you will be honored to the utmost by what we sing, and what we hear, and how we respond. May our Lord Jesus Christ have his proper place, not only in this house of worship, but in the heart of every person here. It is for his glory that we have met. And it is in his all-sufficient name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We've pondered the question this morning in Sunday school very briefly as to how, how do unbelievers make it in this world? When they do not have one to turn to, when the agonies of life strike, and friends, you do not have to be alone in this world. You can belong to Christ. When you turn to Christ as Lord, when you turn to him as master and possessor, he takes you to be his own. Not as a heavy-handed, slave-driving, merciless owner, but as a tender, doting father would treat his own children that are very near and dear to his heart. Our Lord takes us and he is a tender and, and succoring Lord. We need no other go-between. He is the one and only and he is always ready to be there to support and encourage and to provide for us. And we need no other. It is now time for us to open the word that tells us about this Lord, this word of the living God we call the Bible. Open your Bible with me to the Gospel of John in chapter 4. Gospel of John, chapter 4. As we are looking at the life and times of this precious and tender Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, John the Apostle, the, the evangelist, has recorded for us about our Lord You're sitting down, so this won't be as big of a burden for you as it would be if you were standing. But we're going to read the first 46 verses. And I hope I know what you're thinking. Maybe you're thinking what Andre says he thinks when I announce a passage. He said, preacher, you preach till you're done. We're leaving at noon. No, we're not going to cover all of this today. We're not going to cover all of this in a couple of weeks. <clears throat> this will become nothing less than a series for you and I as we go through this. I've spent a few hours breaking this down already into digestible pieces. And I think I'm up to seven. 
You're going to get the first installment today, Lord willing. But this is a unit of thought. This is a conversation. This is the longest recorded conversation of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. There's much that is said here, but it is said in the context of a conversation. We have just come from chapter 3, where the Lord had a conversation with Nicodemus. And we see a, not a conversation, but a declaration at the end of, of John chapter 3 from the baptizer. But here we step into the life of the Lord Jesus and we follow him from this beginning, this seemingly successful beginning of his ministry where, where the fame is spreading quickly and, and he is rising to, to high places in the people's minds. And then he has this seemingly innocuous moment in his life where he runs into someone in a very remote place, very unexpectedly. But John has taken 46 verses to record this conversation. And I cannot believe that the Holy Spirit of God would have had John pen 46 verses of something that was not meaningful. Or that he would pen something that took 46 verses of this very small vignette of the life of Jesus Christ and he filled it with 46 verses of fluff. My job here is first and foremost to feed the sheep. I asked the men this morning in the office to pray for me as we go through this that I might accurately do that. Because there is there's a tremendous burden upon me here because I want to glean what all the Holy Spirit is, has given to us from this. Many will turn to this passage and look at it as just an example of evangelism. To be sure, that is here. That is here. But that is not why it is here. As we go through this, I want every person, under the sound of my voice, to replace the second character in this dialogue with you. Take this lady out. Put you in. And understand what the Lord is doing in this lady's life and what the Lord has chosen to do through this woman. Let us read. John chapter 4 and verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, 
everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. Is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. No kidding. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or, why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out from the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then the harvest? Then comes the harvest? Look. I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving his wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. Pray with me. Father, as we open your word, we look to you to... Take us where we cannot go. To give us understanding in that which we cannot grasp. 
We can read facts on the paper and we can read the words that are here. But Lord, for us to grasp what you have recorded and preserved this for, we are desperate for your Spirit's intervention. Pray that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Pray that you will give us malleable, pliable hearts of clay in the place of hearts of stone that, that we might allow your work to have its way and be done in our hearts. Help us to enthrone your word, not only in this pulpit, but in our own hearts, that we might take the very word of the Creator and live it out in a way that shows the world that we do believe that it is the sole authority for life and practice. Guide us today. Instruct us today. Teach us today. Above all of these things, we pray that you be honored this day. And we pray it in the all-sufficient name of our soon-coming Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I've already told you that this is the longest recorded dialogue with Jesus. Of all the people that he spoke to, this is the longest record of conversation that he has. And some of the interesting aspects of that is, are, are, are these. This is not a conversation that the God-man had with a theologian. You would think that a theologian would have been in line for being one who would have the, the most to talk about Jesus with, the one that Jesus would have maybe the, the most maybe the, the most reason to pour himself into because of the area of influence that a theologian would have. We've just seen his conversation with Nicodemus, the theologian in Israel. He's not having a conversation with a ruler. He will have a conversation with the governor of Judea in Pilate at the end of John's gospel. This is not a conversation with a disciple. He doesn't have a conversation with any of his disciples this long. He has this longest recorded dialogue conversation with a woman. Now, in our day and age, you can't really say those words with any vehemence or you will be attacked and assaulted. What do you mean, with a woman? What's wrong with a woman? Same thing is wrong with a man. Don't talk about that equality, do we? This is not then. My responsibility with this book is not to bring this book into your life, is to take you back into the in, into the life that was lived around this book so that you understand what it's talking about. When I say that he had a conversation with a woman, you need to realize that an Orthodox Jew did not have conversation with a woman outside of his family in public, and the most Orthodox didn't have conversations with their, their uh, sisters and daughters in public. This was not what was done. To say this was a faux pas is to put it un immeasurably lightly. This was not done. This didn't happen. This was a scandalous act by all the accounts of people around. Oh, so you mean Jesus did something wrong? No. I mean the, the fact that it was scandalous was wrong. Not only is, it, is he speaking to a woman in public in the daytime, outside of, of his home, he is speaking with a sinful woman. She's a sinful woman who has had five husbands and no doubt many, uh, many living arrangements with men living in, in adulterous fornication. And the one that she is currently living with at the time this conversation takes place is not her husband. She is a woman who has been hardened by the world. She has a sharp tongue. She has, she has been bamboozled and taken advantage of and ridiculed and outcast for many years. And it comes out in her dialogue with him and he is never deterred. This is a sinful, immoral woman, and I'll tell you something that, that Jesus does here. If anything you're going to take away from this, you need to understand that you draw lines of morality that keep you from witnessing to people that would not stop the Lord Jesus Christ. He was known as the friend of tax collectors and sinners. Why? Because he would actually dialogue with them. And those people were being saved. And most of you in this room can 
find yourself in the same shoes as the church in Corinth when Paul says, such were some of you. But you have been washed and you have been sanctified. You have been brought into the kingdom of God's dear son. Not only was this a woman, not only was this scandalous, just on, on the surface, not only was this a sinful, immoral woman, she was a sinful, immoral woman from Samaria. It says that the Jews had nothing to do with the Samaritans. That is putting it lightly. They hated them. That's why in Luke's gospel, Jesus gives the parable of the good Samaritan. He could have just said the good neighbor, but he picks the Samaritan. They were the most hated of all people. We live in a, a, a climate right now. I heard of an interview with one of the presidential candidates on CNN this past week. And there are people in this country that think that there was never any uh, bigoted discord between different skin tone people in the history of the world until the 16th century Atlantic slave trade brought slaves from Africa to, to this side of the world. There's more slavery today than there's ever been, and there was more slavery then than you ever want to even think about. And there was more bigotry and hatred for other people from the Jewish people of this time than anything that you've ever seen. It's getting back to that kind of hatred in this country. But it's nothing like this. The Samaritans were a hated people group by the Israeli people. Now, that is not to say that the Samaritans were innocent people. I don't mean to say that. The Samaritans had done plenty. They, they, were, they were an outcast group of people. They were an impure, uh, sinful group of people, impure in, in, the, in the, the Jewish uh, way, from, from the way that the, the Jewish lineage came. They had intermarried with, with people from all over the world after the, the captivity in 722. I'll get a little more into that in a little while. But this, this is the most unlikely of people. This would have been the most unsavable person on the planet from the external eye. When in reality, Nicodemus was the most unsavable person on the planet because he had no reason to think that God, he needed a savior anywhere. This woman had reason to think that she needed a savior in everything she had ever done. This is a Samaritan, immoral, scandalous woman that Jesus is speaking to in the middle of the day. Yet it is here that the Lord Jesus Christ personally reveals himself as Messiah. He never said that to Nicodemus. He hasn't yet said that to his disciples. The most that the disciples know is what John the Baptist said. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This woman is looking for the Messiah who is called Christ, and he tells her, woman, I am him. He saves that declaration to give ammunition to the Pharisees and the Sadducees on the night of his betrayal for them to finally have reason enough to go through with the crucifixion. They're, they're muddling up the crucifixion. It needs to happen, and you buffoons can't do it, so I'm going to have to help you. Yes, I am the Son of God. That'll get you mad enough to crucify me. I'll just tell you the truth, and then you'll kill me for it. And they did, and we now have a Savior. But his first revelation of himself is to this lady. There is far more in this passage than a cursory treatment will allow us to, to use. This will be a series of sermons on the chapter where he reveals himself. He unveils himself to the least likely person on the planet. He's just left the most religious man on the planet and left him in a place of ignorance. But here he chooses to exercise his grace toward the least likely candidate. We learn much about the Savior's heart here. He is far less concerned with morality in light of the gospel presentation than we oftentimes are. And he offers his salvation completely based upon his grace. He was, as we should be, totally unmoved by the prejudices in his world. Skin color, ethnicity, origin, gender, religious perspective, et al. are all big issues to many people. But none are able to help or defy the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a lesson that the disciples had to learn. It is a lesson that people have to learn over and over and over again. You know, every shade of brown in skin tone, 
got off of that ark and ate people. I don't know how far back you can track your people, but you can't go quite that far back. But I can tell you this, if you could, that's where it would go. And Jesus died for all eight of them. And Jesus died for people from every tribe and nation and tongue. And it was a lesson that these men needed to learn because what they expected and what they had been told all of their life was wrong. And they needed to be brought back to the scripture. They needed to be brought back to the word of God. And they were walking around with the word of God in human form. Because the word became flesh. And they are learning about God from God in real time. And it is shocking them. And John records it here. Jesus reveals himself to all that he desires and to all he designs to reveal himself to. Our need as his ambassadors is to learn from him and serve him in such a way as honors him. You're going to see some things out of the life of the Lord Jesus here that, that make it impossible for us to continue to make mistakes, for, uh, make excuse for why we are not as faithful to him as we should be. The Apostle John and the Holy Spirit have recorded and preserved this record for us, and we will attempt to treat it with the utmost humility and dignity. I will remind you that John has written this gospel so that you might come to know that Jesus is the Christ and that by faith in him you might be saved. In John chapter 4, verses 1 to 46, we see the Messiah reveals himself. Verses 25 and 26 is the, the high point in this with this lady. I who speak to you am he. But in the first six verses here today, we see an unavoidable meeting. There was an unavoidable meeting that had to take place. And it was an unavoidable meeting for her and an unavoidable meeting for him. And it was an unavoidable meeting for you and I. And the record of it is here for us to feast upon and to learn from. We'll see in verses 1 through 3 a strategic move. It was, there was a needed departure on Jesus' part. He needed to leave. In verse 4, we see that there was a necessary detour. And we see some very instructive narrative description given to us in verses 5 and 6. Let's dive in here at this needed departure in verses 1 through 3. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. It was necessary. It was a needed departure. And, it, and it's strategic in how it happens. It was a needed departure because the enemy has surfaced. In verse 1, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard. Let me stop right here. Pharisees are going to become the enemy of God. They were the self-proclaimed friends of God. They were the self-proclaimed evangelists of God. They were the most godly people on the planet because they had the most extensive rules that were kept. They were the makers and keepers of the rules. And they had heard that Jesus had baptized more disciples than John. If you remember... In chapter 3, in verse 25, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. This capital J Jew is referencing in, in, in verse 26, or 25, is, in chapter 3, is referencing a Pharisee. This man had come from the Pharisees. They're trying to keep people in line because we are the ones that, that hold the keys to the kingdom because we tell you how good you must be to reach God. And if someone else is coming along and telling people, we have to be the gatekeepers. The problem was they were guarding their own gate. They were not guarding God's gate. When you get away from this book and you get into whatever set of rules that you like or whatever you've been told, if it's a set of rules that makes you right with God, friends, you need to throw the rules out because there's one thing that makes you right with God, and it's the righteousness of God and Jesus Christ accredited to your account by your faith in him, not your production in life. They found out that Jesus was baptizing more than John. They said, you know, and, and we read this and say, well, well, why didn't they go after John? Well, most likely... What we read in, in Matthew chapter 4 is the arrest of John. You'll remember that, that uh, the, the John the disciple here writes 
in verse 24 that John had not yet been put in prison. It wasn't very long after he wrote that that John was put into prison. How long of an interval between the, the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4? I don't know. It might have gone three months, four months, two months, a week. It might have been three or four days. But when they have John the Baptist arrested, now they've got a little bit more bold. We got John arrested. We got him out of here. You remember how John treated the Pharisees. All of the people were coming to be baptized. The Pharisees come down. And what was John's reaction to them in Matthew's gospel? You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Produce deeds in keeping with repentance. And don't worry about getting wet. The wet doesn't change anything for you. The wet is a picture of what has already happened to you. Now, it was a little different baptism. Then it was a baptism of repentance. The, these people were coming to be baptized to, to declare outwardly that they agreed inwardly that they were not right enough to be with God and that they were, they were putting themselves in a repentant place and repenting of their sin to prepare themselves for the arrival of Messiah. That would change on the day of Pentecost. Christian baptism had not been invented until the church was born. It had not been exercised. I say invented. That's too strange of a word. It was not exercised. But as John's been arrested, they've been emboldened. And they look and they say, well, we got John arrested. This Jesus dude's baptizing more than him, and he's right here. Let's go get him. But it wasn't his time yet. Don't ever forget this, friends. Jesus was crucified on God's timetable, not the Jews' timetable. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I lay down my life, and I take it up again. He was not a victim like we think of a victim. He allowed them to crucify him because you and I need it so desperately. You can remember this as well. Religion is always the enemy of grace. Religion is always the enemy of grace. The grace of God, the unmerited favor bestowed on the sinner that will ask, the sinner that comes in repentance and faith and asks to be forgiven, the sinner that comes and asks to be saved, the sinner that comes and petitions. Don't bring a gift. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to your cross I cling. We come to him confessing that I believe that Jesus paid it all and that my end of the equation is only evil always. Religion is always the enemy of grace, and when they saw this gracious Savior, friends, they wanted to maintain personal control over the people. The enemy surfaced. But in verse 2, we see that there was an essential service being done to and by the disciples. It says that they found out that Jesus was baptizing more disciples than John. Remember, these people have been following the Pharisees around, and the Pharisees are the ones giving them the rules, and the Pharisees say, if you keep our rules, you're right with God. These people are taking this life that they live by the Pharisees' rules, and they're going out to John, who says, you need to be baptized to, to show outwardly that you are not good enough to be ready for the Messiah. So now the Pharisees are... are in conflict with this because we're telling you you can be and John's telling you you must admit that you can't be good enough. So now there's a conflict of interest for the Pharisees. Jesus is now baptizing more than John did. So his ministry has already superseded John's ministry. And he's baptizing and, and they, they, they can't stand that. They don't want people going and doing that because it's not just them getting wet. The people are admitting that we and the Pharisees teaching is not enough to make us right with God. Pharisees don't want to hear, oh, so you're telling me that, that what I'm teaching you is not good enough? That's exactly what we're telling you. Well, then, then we got to get rid of that because I have to be the one that's right. Friends, sometimes where there's smoke, there's fire. And sometimes we're confronted with things we really need to think through. And these people needed to think it through, and they would not. They were baptizing. This was an essential service because Jesus, through these disciples here, is setting the stage for the church. He's preparing the 12, or really the 11, he's preparing them for believer's baptism that is to come after the church is born on the day of Pentecost. It's essential because it's preparing the 12, it's preparing them for the service to come, but it is essential as well because it is proclaiming him, because John did the baptizing himself, but Jesus stood 
back and allowed the disciples to do the baptizing. He was elevating himself above John. There was no hierarchical position necessary here for baptizing. I want to make that clear for you as well. We tend to look at this and say, well, it has to be the pastor that does the baptizing. Take that book and find that for me. Sometimes I'll allow a dad in this church to baptize his, his child. I have no problem with that. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's hard to maintain your composure. I'll just tell you as a dad, that's hard to do. A lot of, and, and some don't want to do it. Is it proper for the leadership to do it? Yeah, yeah. But this doesn't say that if you were baptized by somebody other than the preacher that, that it didn't count. No hierarchical position is necessary for baptizing, but what is necessary is that the church sanctions it after validating faith that led to salvation in your life. There's some of these places that have a baptismal service and people get all excited and they make it fun and they give these little goofy interviews. You see them on YouTube and, and the fake book and whatever. And, oh, yeah, and they just make it all fun. And then at the end, the guy says, hey, anybody else want to get baptized? Dude, we're not down at Blue Bayou. What are you talking about? Anybody want to get on a slip and slide? No, no, this is a serious thing. Do we have to do it in solemn humming? No, I don't mean to make it sound like that. But it's serious, and it's something that the church exercises. Something that the church sanctions. It's something that the Lord sanctioned here, and he gave to his disciples to do it. And by him not doing it, it was proclaiming his elevation even over John the Baptist because the baptizer did it himself, but Jesus oversaw it. Verse 3, we see an exit strategy in this needed departure. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. He's leaving Judea and going back to Galilee. That's where he's from. Nazareth is in Galilee. The first, the first miracle that he performed is in Cana, which is uh, a neighboring village to Galilee on the, the Sea of uh, Tiberias there on the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is there where Peter and, and Andrew and James and John are from. It says that he left Judea. Hmm. Some see in this a very sad commentary that he left them behind. This is the same word that is used... Later, when it says that the woman left her jar, she just abandoned her jar and ran to town. It's as though Jesus abandoned Judea. Now, I don't see it quite as that, but he did leave Judea, and he spent the majority of the rest of his ministry in Galilee. That gave him a little bit of a cushion. Now, we, we tend to, to say John was in Judea because it was close to the metropolis of Jerusalem, and the people, he would have had more access to people. It would have been easier for the people to get to him. But Jesus goes to Galilee, and if you remember the Sermon on the Mount, and if you remember the feeding of the 5,000 men and their families, that was all in Galilee. The people came and found him. It wasn't as though his ministry waned because he went to no man's land. He went into the, the back country, went into the hills. It's not so much that he, he abandoned Judea because he continues to go back. In chapter 5, you see him going back for the, the feast. He's right back there again. But he goes, he left Judea in, in this sense. Judea was not going to be the home base of his activity. He was going to be in Galilee. He was going to be in the north. Most of his miracles and ministry were done somewhere other than Judea. And one of the reasons he went to Galilee is this. Because it, it gave time for him to be separated from the Pharisees until the right time came. Remember when Mary asked him to... To, uh, that told him that there was no wine. He said, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His hour had not yet come, so he goes to Galilee to put enough of a cushion between himself and the Pharisees that there, that there would be, uh, there would be the, the cushion enough for the time to pass until it, was, it indeed was his time. A, necessary, a, a needed de departure... is exercised, and we see him take a needed detour, a necessary detour. He had to, to take a detour. And you say, well, what do you mean he had to take a detour? Here's the thing. If you look at a map of, of Israel in the time of Christ, you have Galilee in the north, you have Judea in the south. What's in the middle? Samaria. 
a good Jewish kid would not go through Samaria. The good Jewish people would go east. Yes, they would go east. I'm trying to do this for you looking at the map. They would go east and come up and back into Galilee and bypass Samaria. Jesus doesn't do that. He goes right through the middle. Now you need to understand that the Jews hated Samaritans. I, I told you earlier that they hated them. I'll give you a little history as to why they hated the Samaritans. We read from 1 Kings chapter 12 where the kingdom split this morning. The kingdom of Samaria was the rebellious kingdom. At the end of that chapter, it says that they had, Israel had been in rebellion against David from that time. David was the promised king. But Solomon lived such a wicked life later in, in the, the latter years of his life. His wives, he allowed to corrupt him and, and brought this, this great promised servant of the Lord to a, a very tragic end. And what's interesting about that is he was the wisest man who ever lived, and he had one of the, the most terrible endings. It was great in the middle, but it ended bad. Friends, we want to end strong. We don't want to end weak. Whatever's happened in the past is in the past. You can finish strong. What matters for you is what's ahead, not what's behind. God's looking ahead. How are you going to handle what's happening now and from now on, not what you did in the past? Solomon had a, a, a great name he had made for himself, and he, he destroyed all of it at the end of his life. And he had a son named Rehoboam, and God raised up an enemy against him named Jeroboam. And when he died, Rehoboam decided that instead of doing what the people asked and, and really ingratiating himself toward the people, he took the advisors that had advised his dad and he told him, I don't want to know what you think. I want to know what these spoiled, rotten, rich boys that grew up with me think. And they said, what you need to do is put these people in their place and tell them, I've got more strength in my little finger than my father had in his thigh, and I'm going to put you under harder labor. And the people rebelled, as people will do. And they rebelled and they followed Jeroboam. But that was by God's design. That's why God told, told, uh, told them not to go to war. Do not go against them because what has happened is by the decree of God. So they all went home. And they lived in that separation and they've never been reunited. That was in about 950 or 1000 B.C., 722 B.C. Because Jeroboam was told by God that he needed to to worship a certain way, he decided to ignore that, and he did what he wanted to do. We read it this morning. He made two golden calves. He put one in Bethel, and he put one in Dan, one at the top of the country, one in the southern portion of the country, and he said, Behold your gods that brought you out of Egypt. What a wicked man. What a wicked, wicked man. He did exactly what Aaron did on, at the foot of Mount Sinai when God said, You know what, Moses? Get out of the way. I'm destroying him. I'm starting over with you because all I got is time. I can raise up another people... In the, in the next thousand years, be like tomorrow for me. And Moses, Moses pled for the people, and, 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 and the Lord relented. But when these people decided to follow Jeroboam, they completely abandoned David, God's king. They completely abandoned God's design for worship. And they, it, at some point, they tried to amalgamate the two together. They brought in some of, some of uh, Old Testament idea of worship and, and some of pagan and blended them together. They became a mongrel religion. And they became a mongrel people because in 722 B.C., 150 or so year, 250 or so years after Jeroboam does this, God sends the Assyrians, and the Assyrians destroy the capital city of Samaria. They take all of the people, which is what has always happened in history. What, what America does when we win a war, of course, what I know of the government today, I don't know if we've ever won a war. We know what they've told us about it. But when America wins, we don't go in. We, we didn't go into Iraq, depose the leader, and then impose our, our own ways of doing it. Okay, you're going to just going to become the, the, the 51st state of, of America. We didn't do that. That's what every other country, every conquering nation has ever done. That's what the Assyrians did. They went in, they took all of the people, and they scattered them four winds. And they brought in people from, from Babylonia and Assyria and, and, and other, some of the, the Hittite nations that were still around. They brought them in. And those people had already developed a Mongol religion. And now they, they had intermarried with the, the pagans around that were brought in. So they had been completely, from the Jewish 
the, the, the Orthodox Jewish position, they had been completely stripped of any claim to God. And they were just a despicable group of people. And I'll tell you that they've never returned yet. Jeremiah said they would. Ezekiel said they would. Zechariah said they would. Now, either they were wrong or it hasn't happened yet. There's no other explanation. Orthodox Jews, knowing all of this, always went around Samaria to Galilee. Very seldom and only under the necessary circumstance did they go through. But we see here that the Son of the living God passed through and took a necessary detour. Now, for one reason it was a necessary detour is because it was direct access. The quickest way to go from Judea to Galilee is go right through. That's the quickest, easiest way. You don't have to cross the river twice. You don't have to go through the desert on the other side of the Jordan River. You go right through. Shortest distance between two points, straight line. It was easy access. It was a direct access. It was the straightest route to Galilee. It was also built into it. There was a, dev- a designed avoidance. He could avoid... The Pharisees, because the Pharisees would not go that way. If he's trying to get away from the Pharisees, if you go through there, there's one thing for sure. They're not going in there. You cross into that border, and those goody two-shoes were not about to go through there. They weren't getting their feet dirty with the, the, uh, the sand of, of Samaria. For future reference, I want to read this to you from... John Kitto, it's uh, known that he was one of Spurgeon's favorite commentators. He says that Samaria, which means translated watch height, something from above that you're watching from a height, was a city situated near the middle of Palestine built by Omri, the king of Israel, on a mountain or hill of the same name in 925 B.C., It was a metropolis of the kingdom of Israel, the ten northern tribes. When it split, you had the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah. When you read your Old Testament, you read in Kings and Chronicles, you read of the king of Israel and the king of Judah, king of Israel, king of Judah. That's where that split came. The hill was purchased from the owner, whose name was Shemer, from whom the city took its name. Samaria was just a a changed form of of the, the name Shemer. Samaria continued to be the capital of Israel for two centuries till the carrying away of the tribes by Shalmanazar in 722. During this time, it was the seat of idolatry and is often as such denounced by the prophets. It was the seat of the temple of Baal. It was built by Ahab. It was destroyed by Jehu. It was the scene of many of the acts of Elijah and Elisha. Most of, of the 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 miracles, that, the judgment miracles that Elijah and Elisha produced were in the area of Samaria. Connected with various families of the land, the unexpected plenty of Samaria and the several deliverances of the city from the Syrians. After the exile of the ten tribes, Samaria appears to have continued for a time at least as the chief city of the foreigners brought to occupy that place. Although Shechem would soon become the capital of the Samaritans as a religious sect. Shechem... Is most likely the city Sychar, the village Sychar that is is described here, where Jesus meets the woman. The, the she goes back into her village of Sychar. That was most likely the rebuilding of Shechem in Samaria. Augustus Caesar bestowed Samaria on Herod, who eventually rebuilt the city with great magnificence and gave it the name Sabaste. Herod planted a colony of 6,000 persons comprised partly of military veterans, partly of people from the environs, and enlarged the circumference of the city. And later in the gospel, it's the city of Samaria that, is, that was uh, where Philip went to preach the gospel. These people were separated from the Israeli people. The Pharisees wouldn't go near this because of all of the history that it had of being contaminated by Gentiles, even to the point that Caesar Augustus, just uh, 70 or, or, or 80 years prior to this, had rebuilt the city and, in, and filled it with Romans and filled it with other Gentiles. They hated this place. So if he could go there, the Pharisees would not follow. But friends, the reason it was a necessary detour is not because of the direct access. It's not because it was, uh, there was a designed avoidance in this track. It's because there was a divine appointment to be met. Look what it says here, verse 4. 
and he had to pass through Samaria. That word is very often and most accurately translated by the word must. He must pass through. We've seen this word several times in chapter 3 and verse 7. Jesus says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. It's not optional. It has to happen. Verse 14, he says, as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In verse 30, he must increase and I must decrease. This is not optional. He must pass through Samaria. Chapter 4 and verse 20. She said, our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. That word ought is, should be translated must. You say that people must worship in Jerusalem. You Jews say that there's only one place on the planet where people must worship, and it's in Jerusalem. And that was true. That was true then. Chapter 20 and verse 9, amongst other places, he uses this word again. He must go through Samaria. They did not yet understand the scripture that he, being Jesus, must rise from the dead. It said he must pass through Samaria. And interestingly enough, this word for must is the root of the word doulos, a slave. A slave has to do what the master says. A slave has a responsibility. He must pass through. There was a divine appointment there. He had to pass through Samaria. He had a divine appointment with a woman, not a theologian, individually like he did with uh, with Nicodemus, a person of of high repute is a, a person of very little repute and it was not with a crowd he went there because he must meet with her now verses five and six we see an, a narrative description came to a town of samaria called sychar near the field that jacob had given to his son joseph Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. We see an honorable context in which this happens. This is the word, the, the place is called Sychar. It's, it's most likely Shechem. It's located about 30 miles north of Jerusalem, halfway between Jerusalem and Nazareth, at the base of Mount, base of Mount Gerizim. It was where the Samaritans claimed was the true center of worship of Jehovah was on Mount Gerizim. Jacob's well was about a half a mile outside the village. One theologian said the word Sychar means drunken, and there was a reason that they had given the name Sychar to the city of Shechem because of its idolatrous and, and wicked behavior, and the name just stuck. You imagine if you were telling people, I'm going to Walmart in, in, uh, in Drunkenville? Yeah, we're going to Alcoholicville. That, that's that, that's what this would this would connotation this would give. It was a place long forgotten and abandoned by religionists, but significant to a God faithful to His promises and people. This was in the land of of Joseph's son Ephraim. You read in your Old Testament. God, I've already told you that God refers to Israel and Judah. And he puts them together when he talks about reuniting them in the Messiah. And that has not happened yet. He's going to give the land back to Israel and Judah. It has not happened yet. Did I say that? It hadn't happened yet? Okay, I want to make sure it's clear in your mind. Has not happened yet. Didn't happen in 70 AD. Didn't happen before that. Didn't happen after. The Messiah is going to do it. But when you hear him refer sometimes to Ephraim and Judah, Ephraim was another name that, that God used in to describe Israel. And Ephraim was one of Joseph's sons that Jacob blessed. The two half-tribes, the tribe of Ephraim and the tribe of Manasseh. He took Joseph and split it in half. So you had the, the tribe of Joseph was split into Manasseh and Ephraim. And Ephraim is the name that God uses to, to talk about, uh, to describe Israel. And they meet in a city, a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. This is in that land that Jacob had given to his favorite son Joseph. 
Joseph, who had been the savior of the people first, that God had raised up to, to spare them. And there's a well of water there. Now, what's interesting here, Joseph's been gone for a long time. Thousands of years Joseph's been gone. This well is still there. Interestingly enough, the well is still there today. A well long established and preserved still to this day. There, there was an honorable context to the place that they are. That honor had long been lost in the minds of the Israeli people, but it had not been lost in the mind of God. This narrative also tells us of the humanity of Jesus. They used to teach that Jesus was more like a uh, prehistoric hologram, that he didn't really walk around, he wasn't really here. Just people thought that they saw him, but they really didn't see him. He, he really wasn't a person. This tells us that he was a person. Look at verse 6. We see the humanity of Christ here. Jacob's well was there. It was near the field that Jacob had given to Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So we're at the well that Jacob gave, gave to Joseph. And she's going to say that uh, later in verse 12. So Jesus wearied as he was from his journey. This, this is, I don't know what this conjures in your mind, but this is a man that was utterly exhausted. And it says, was sitting beside the well. He is slumped over on the side of that well, wanting, he needs something to drink. His humanity is on full display. This was a 20-mile trip through the hills. Wasn't just 20 miles walking down the roads bad enough for an American, but 20 miles through the hills, through the foothills, through the mountains. This was an absolutely exhausting trip that they had taken. And he comes there, and he is so weary that he can't even go to town to get something to eat, so he stays there and sends the disciples into town. Wearied, exhausted, slumped over. That is the setting here. And I want you to notice what he does not do that he could have done. He does not make water for himself like he made wine for the people in Cana. Jesus never served himself with his miracle power. It was always for the glory of God and the good of his people. He never served himself with his miracles. But we see the humanity of the God-man on full display here. He was as exhausted as you and I would have been, which makes it even more remarkable that he finds his concern for this woman's eternity of more consequence than his need for sustenance. That doesn't mean that you should starve yourself to death and work yourself to death. That's silly. But there was an opportunity that arise, and he put his own needs aside for the needs of this woman. And in that we see the humility of Christ. You see the fact that he is here points to his humility. Maybe he was too tired to go to town. I don't know. But one thing I can tell you is he had a divine appointment here. And if nothing else, he was waiting to introduce himself to this lady. And friends, for each of us that have come into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, he's waited for us. He put himself in a position to bring us to him when he didn't have to. Trust me, he had far better things to do with, with his existence than to worry about saving me. But he did it anyway. There's far more going on in heaven that he needs to be tending to than for him to be concerned about me for a nanosecond. But he stepped into this world to save me. He stepped into this world to save you and every one of his people. Even this woman that the world would consider the, the most impossible person to be saved. I'll remind you that this is the Christ and he offers his salvation to you if you will believe. This is the Christ who shows us his heart in evangelizing people. He was more concerned for her than he was for himself. And when she comes, he asks her to dip him water out of that well. When he could have made water flow from the side of that mountain to water that entire plain for eternity. 
we see the exhausted, thirsty evangelist in our Lord Jesus Christ. As he comes to this unavoidable meeting. It's debated as to whether he knew that he was going to meet her there or if he followed the leading of the Spirit and the Spirit led him there and he took advantage of the opportunity. I don't think it matters. God knew where he was sending him. Friends, God knows the positions and the situations he's going to put you in and sometimes he's going to call for you and I to take ourselves out of ourselves and and be more concerned for his gospel proclamation than we are for our own comfort. And if nothing else you take from this, that you can put in your pocket and take it home. We serve a great Savior. Let us pray. Father, we praise you for your word, praise you for the record of our Lord Jesus dealing with this lady. I, I hope that we all see ourselves in this, Lord, and not someone else. We are all desperately in need of what she was in need of. We praise you that you have invaded our lives and brought your gospel to bear on our hearts and not left us in our ignorance and anger, but you have brought us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of your dear Son. And he is worthy to be praised in all that we do and certainly worthy for us to serve him in bringing his gospel to others as he did, as he did for this lady, as he has done for us through his instruments on this earth. We pray that he will be honored for all that he has done in all that we do. We pray it in his precious name. Amen.